Does anyone else like Googling their symptoms to see what's wrong with them? I actually think I'm quite good at it, you know, because sometimes the boys are sick and kids have kind of like different sicknesses. They have like weird things. So I Google it, find out what's wrong with them. And often you find out it's nothing serious, nothing to worry about. The other day, I was convinced that I was brushing my teeth too hard because my teeth were getting a bit sensitive. So I was like, you know what? The, the solution here, buy an electric toothbrush. That'll solve the problem. Genius move. So, you know, I'm not brushing it too hard then. Then I also went to the dentist at the same time. Turns out the tooth actually had a massive hole in it and it needed a filling putting in. Got that one wrong. Good job for the experts though, the ones who can tell us what's going on. They've got the skills needed to diagnose problems and it's important for all of us. We've got doctors and lawyers and engineers, health and safety officers, accountants. They all help us through life. But there's one problem that hangs over humanity, the big problem. What is wrong with us? I think we instinctively know that things aren't quite right here and now. This world isn't quite what it's meant to be. We know there's some sort of problem here, but it's difficult to put our finger on quite what it is. Do you want some answers from Google? I like this first one. I can um, relate to this. Apparently, we're too stupid to survive. Maybe we need educating. Apparently, the big problem is that we're killing the planet. Or weirdly, the main problem is the sperm quality has decreased. But whatever, but the question here, what is wrong with humanity, reverberates right to the core of who we are. It's an existential question. But it's also a personal question. We wrestle it in the dark times in life. What's going on? Why is everything always such a mess? We're going to look at the answer through Jeremiah 17, verse 5 to 8. Um, keep your Bibles open um, and follow along there. Um, the answer he provides in that passage is old. Maybe even old-fashioned, some would say. But it's not outdated. The answer that he gives to what is wrong with the human race is sin. He lives around 2,300 years ago, but this passage strikes home as relevant as the moment it was written. At the time of writing, Israel wasn't doing that well, and Jeremiah spends a large amount of time denouncing Israel's sin, telling them where they've gone wrong. But in this particular passage, Jeremiah gives us a glimpse, not into what is the actions of their sins, but into the nature of their sin. He peels back the layers to show us what's going on. As Pete said earlier, we've been going through our values uh, week by week. And this is the last one this morning. As a church, we want to be continually growing in Christ. So why am I talking about sin? Well, because to be growing means to be alive, to be vibrant, to be home. And Pete preached on this a few weeks ago when he looked at our verse of the year, Colossians 2, 6 and 7, or verses of the year, being rooted and built up in him. Find it on YouTube, give it a rewatch. But to be growing means not only to know what the nature 
of the solution is, but also to know what the nature of sin is and how to fight it. So Jeremiah will help us with that through a picture of two trees. We're going to look at the problem with the roots, the, the fruits of the roots being useless, and we're also going to look at the solution. So let's start away with the problem being with our roots. So in the chapter 17 that we just had read, we have two plants described. The first one is in verses 5 and 6 of your Bibles. It says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. And the second one, verse 7 and 8, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. They'll be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. The two plants provide a brilliant, clear image. One of them is obviously in trouble. One of them obviously has no troubles. And the key difference is where they are rooted. One of them is rooted in the parched places of the desert, sending roots out into a salt land where no one lives. The other one is planted by water, sending roots into the stream. The result is that they're completely different plants. One is a bush or a shrub in the desert, a dry, knotted plant, one that can barely feed itself. The other is a tree that never fails to bear fruit, feeding not just itself, but everyone around it as well. The roots are the clear problem here. It's where they're planted that's leading to the problem. And that's Jeremiah's answer to what is the problem we're facing. It's the roots, not the shoots. Not sure if you've heard it like this before, but I've often heard sin described as breaking rules, as wrong twists or turns that people make, as simple um, things that people do and then we're punished with, sent to hell. But the nature of sin here isn't about breaking rules. It's completely and utterly different from godliness. It could not be further from each other, could they? a shrub in the desert, and a tree planted by water. Sin is shown here to be where you are rooted, where the roots of your heart entwine around. And how do you know where your roots are? How do you know if you're a cursed or a blessed plant? Right here, the roots are being described as being trust in verse 8. Cursed is the one, in verse 5, cursed is the one who trusts in man. And in verse 8, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Trust. Or in other words, faith. Life is based on trust in something. That is the lifeblood of our entire walks here. Putting our faith, trust in something beyond us. Both plants have roots. 
They have faith. They've anchored their life onto something. In verse 5, the cursed plant trusts in man and draws strength from mere flesh. The blessed plant trusts the Lord. In my life, I've firmly bought into the saying that you get what you pay for. I tell myself that spending a little bit more on something, something that's just a little bit better, will be worthwhile. But often I can't afford it anyway. But I go down into rabbit holes, researching the best products. Recently, I needed some new shoes. So I was looking at the benefits of quality, handmade leather shoes, reading on the best brands, reading reviews, seeing what people said. Mileage is a thing in shoes, apparently. So you can look up what the mileage different shoes will get you in different ways to repair. Not sure why I did that though, because all of them started at like 200 pounds and I'm never gonna spend 200 pounds on a pair of shoes. In the end, I went to Clark's outlet and used a discount code and bought some from there. I think it's my first pair of Clark's since I was a kid. So maybe I'm a proper old person now. They're uh, sturdy and good quality, but they're not quite handmade. Sometimes I just like the idea of having the best of something almost like it confers meaning onto me, like I put my trust in them to give me meaning. And Jeremiah is here talking about what we trust in. But is your first reaction to say, well, that doesn't sound like me? No, it's my reaction to say, I don't depend on man. Actually, I don't have any faith. I don't need roots. I'm a free spirit. I, tr I don't trust in mere flesh. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, the very next verse, in verse 9, says the heart is deceitful above all things. So, careful who you believe, just saying. But also, there are signs and symptoms in all of our lives that show where we put our faith. Look at the end of verse 8. What characterizes the blessed person? They have no worries. Their problems are sorted. They don't need to stress anymore. You might say, I don't have faith. But would you believe someone who said they don't have worries? Don't worry, be happy, goes the song. Yeah, right, jog on. But worries stem from putting faith in things that will let you down. Worries come from having bad roots or bad faith. It's crazy for a person to say, I don't have worries. But it's equally crazy to say, I don't trust in man. I don't draw strength from mere flesh. The two go hand in hand. But this is quite out there and conceptual. How are we meant to know where our hearts are planted? Well, first off, it's tricky and takes time, but it needs rooting out. Imagine roots, they go everywhere, wrap around everything. But secondly, there's a couple of tests that you can do. First, a negative test. What do you worry about? What makes would make your life not worth living if you couldn't have it anymore? What keeps you up at night? What causes you to be ill with stress or worry? I know I have things like that. That's where your faith is. 
but also the positive test. Tim Keller loves a quote from William Temple that says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, your faith is what you do when you have nothing else to do. No work or tasks in the moments of daydreaming. Where do you go to get that sweetness? That kick of endorphins, that hope, that rest. Where does your mind wander in those moments of quiet? Do you obsess over material things? That phone, those leather shoes, those clothes, making plans on how to get them? Or is it people that play on your mind? Do you long for deep, good friendships? Or do you think about romantic relationships? Are they all important? Do you have to have a partner at all costs? Do you daydream your time away, imagining what having a partner would look like? Are you determined to succeed at all costs? Coming up with new, wonderful ways to succeed? Or imagining what it would be like for your team to succeed? Although at the moment, that stretches the imagination for some. Do you dream and talk about holidays or food above everything? Where does your mind go in those moments of solitude, of quiet? It goes to your religion. Your religion is where you get that sweetness, something that makes you feel good. You might not think it, but this passage says that that's the biggest problem you're facing. Relying on that too much. They're good things, but they shouldn't be anywhere near our roots. But what does it look like to live without this problem? Let's look at the, the blessed roots. So sin is roots into something other than God, delighting in anything more than God. But the blessed plant trusts the Lord, trusts in him, wraps its roots around him, entwines its heart around God. Every time Christ summarizes the law in the New Testament, it's not rules, but it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Following God isn't a set of rules. It's about anchoring your hopes and dreams in him and him alone. Having a relationship with him, depending on him. Look at verse 7. See how it says the same thing twice? The one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. In Hebrew, it's actually the same word twice. It's like saying the one who trusts, trust. The one who trusts deeply. It also implies that there are those who don't trust deeply. Those who trust superficially. You might say, I do trust the Lord. I come to church. I say my prayers. I listen to his words. But it's possible to be trusting religion rather than trusting in God. Trusting in religious acts rather than in him. This is where Christianity is vastly different to everything else this world has to offer because at its core, it's not about a set of rules, but about a person. But lots of people in churches around the world have sadly forgotten this. Make sure you're not dressing up as a fruit tree in the desert, painting yourself with good deeds. 
Next, we're going to look at the fruits and see that the fruits of sin are useless. Let's look at the two reactions given to weather in verses 6 and verse 8. The cursed plant will not see prosperity when it comes. But the blessed plant, at the end, has no worries, even in a time of drought. One of them is good in all conditions. The other is bad in all conditions. The cursed plant lives in the desert. It's set up for the desert. It's a shrub, a twisted, knotted desert plant. It has roots, but they're set up for the desert. Shallow. They're dwelling in the parched places, thirsty, battling to survive. But then, one day, suddenly, beyond belief, the rain finally comes. The time for the thirsty plant that they've been dreaming of. They've been obsessing over this day, and it's finally arrived. But sadly, it's a desert plant. Its roots aren't set up to take the water. It's a bush. It can't suddenly spring loads of fruit. The water passes it by. Even the rains can't help it. Even prosperity does not quench it. On another one of my uh, research missions, I spent a while watching coffee videos on YouTube. Don't know why I got onto coffee videos. But then I decided that making espressos would be super cool. So I researched the best uh, ones to make espresso. And then I looked at the cheapest ways to make espresso. Um, and found the best one that I could do with my budget. Now it wasn't that expensive, but it was a bit of money. So it took me a bit of time to build it up over a few birthdays and Christmas. Um, and when I finally had... My first one, I could finally drink an espresso that I'd made at home. It wasn't nice. <laughs> Even after a few attempts, Pete said it was undrinkable. <laughs> so you can come round to my house if your thing is tiny, bitter, acidic coffee. I'll do that just for you. But we can build up things in our head, obsess over them. But when they come, they inevitably fall short. A study showed that people who have had one great public success, achieved something massive in their lives, were disproportionately affected by depression afterwards. This can be for a number of reasons. Often the reality doesn't live up to the dreams. But sometimes it's deeper than that. The hope is that the dream will make them a blessed plant that will justify them as a person, make them whole, confirm that they have meaning, that they have value. But when they come, it comes with the realization that they're still human. They're still fragile, still with the same worries, still worried about finding their place in the world, still trying to justify themselves. But what they're depending on is shattered completely. They can't offer what they're looking for. They finally got to the oasis, and it was a mirage. Now, it's not necessarily that the desires are wrong. The things we want are good things. We want rest. We want love. 
We want companionship. They're good desires. But they can't, the things that we put our roots into can't ever offer you what you're looking for. Job, money, family, the lottery, being a footballer. It can't satisfy you. It can't quench your thirst. Actually, it can make things better, uh, worse for you. The blessed plant, on the other hand, even in bad times, it has no worries. Even in a time of drought, doesn't mean it doesn't struggle, doesn't mean it doesn't find it hard, but it means that it's got the supplies to get through. It's built on a rock-solid base, planted by the river. Maybe the money that you desperately want doesn't come. Maybe you never marry. Maybe you don't have children. Maybe the friendship circle you long for doesn't come. But you survive. Hopes and dreams planted firmly in the Lord. When things are going bad for you in your lives, where do you look for solutions? If only I had money. If only I was married. If only I won the lottery. If only I could eat what I wanted and still be healthy. If only I was young again. You need to recognize that it's not the weather that's the problem. It's the roots. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, this is a bit much really. To say nothing can satisfy us. I've had plenty of good things in my life. I've had a good life. I've had fun. I've got good friends. And let me ask you, why do you worry? I worry. All of us worry. Why do you stress? Each and every one of us is riddled with worries. It's because we have a dodgy insurance. We have shaky dreams. Nothing certain to keep us going through the storm. Nothing satisfying enough to devote our lives to that will be worthwhile when we finally get it. This is the hollow promises of sin. We're promised everything, a full banquet, a full carvery of tasty foods, all-you-can-eat breakfast. But one day, sooner or later, the curtain will be fully pulled back. And it will be known that all that glitters is not gold. The emptiness, the twisted lies of sin will be laid bare for all to see. Make that realization now, before it's too late. So what's the solution to the problem? We need to be replanted. There's one kind of problem with this analogy. There's also a problem with reality. How does a shrub turn into a tree? How does a withering knotted bush become a flourishing willow? Jeremiah is denouncing their sin, but also saying, you have no hope. 
As I said before, the very next verse, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Beyond cure. It's a bit of a hopeless analogy, isn't it? But thankfully, in verse 14, he also says, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. We need to be replanted. We need outside intervention. And it turns out to do this, actually a reverse is needed. A tree is needed to be taken out to the desert so that we can take its place by the stream. Front row seats. And Jesus was that tree. He was taken from the river and planted in the desert for us. He took our place. Those familiar with the New Testament might remember the story where he faced temptation in the desert for 40 days. He lived in the parched places. When he was crucified, he had branches of a thorny shrub wrapped around his head. And on, his, on the cross, as he took our place, he knew what it is to be parched. As he hung on the cross, saying what he'd never said before in his life, I am thirsty. Do you know that you need to be replanted? Do you know that you need open heart surgery? That you'll never be cured of your worried without proper roots? Some of us know it. Been through the hard times, been through the good times, felt the emptiness, felt the pain, felt the hollow promises, and overjoyed at the offer. Some maybe don't know it. Maybe been coming to a church for a while or been around church. Church is part of the lives, part of the identity. But haven't really experienced that radical change to your life. Only experienced Christianity as religion. But this process is not a bolt-on. You need replanting. Your roots need to be torn off old things and planted in the new You'll know if this has happened to your hearts and is happening in your hearts. If you haven't had your hearts prized off old habits and given new desires, new hopes, new dreams, if you aren't looking forward to seeing Christ's face on that day when he finally comes, then you need replanting. Some of you might think, this isn't for me because I'm already planted by the river. I'm okay. But what do your worries say? What do your quiet dreams say? What happens if something similar to Job happens to you? I don't know if, you know if you're familiar with the story in the Old Testament. Job is a believer but who loses everything. And he wrestles with God. In the end, he perseveres. It's also clear he needed to be planted way closer to the river. I know I identify with this. Needing to be planted closer to the water. 
Let's untangle our roots and fight off our sins. But most of all, let's be rooted and built up in him. Let's be making Christ our treasure above all else. Do you know what it means to be rooted and built up in him? Do you know what it feels like? Do you know what it feels like to be refreshed in the knowledge of his love? Know what it means to commune with him? If you don't know, find out. These things take time. The Christian life in the New Testament is described as a marriage to Christ. But a marriage isn't done and then put in the cupboard for a rainy day. Every day people work on their marriages, spending time together, enjoying their hobbies, sharing the ups and downs. This is what being rooted in Christ looks like. It takes time. It takes hard work. That's why we have each other here, to help, to remind, to cajole. That's why spending time together is so important. We're so easily led astray. That's why prayer is important. That's why reading the Bible on your own is vital. Meditating on what you've heard, remembering, mulling it over in those quiet moments. Growing takes time. They say after you've moved to a new area or after moving house, it can take two years to adjust. Well, moving from the desert to the river takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime to grow roots in Christ, to fight off the old temptations, the draws of the devil, uh, of the desert. We need this. I know we need this because I worry. We all worry. I get scared. I get stressed. We all get scared and stressed. This is a discipline. But we have the promises. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow to you. God is not our praise as he should be, but one day he will be. And in the meantime, we want to grow more and more in praise every day. We want to grow our roots closer and closer to the stream. That's why our core value as a church is continually growing in Christ, helping each other to continually take our roots out of empty promises and putting them into the precious blood of him who went out into the desert to die of thirst for us. It's closing prayer. Father God, we thank you so much.